I was on Joe Rogan show this week, and he asked me that question too. And what I told Joe is, I said, listen, I've experienced some sniping, meaning that somebody trying to take a shot, uh, but not having the courage to show their face. But I've never had a direct conversation with somebody eye to eye where, where we had an exchange on information. I never had someone come up to me and say, Dr. McCullough, these are really safe and effective, and here's the reason why. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We have a wonderful podcast today. We are with one of the most important voices in medicine in America right now, maybe even the world. We're with Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist out of Dallas, Texas. Um, you know, we're going to be getting into the most important subjects that we can. And we're really going to let Dr. McCullough tell us how it is today. So Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for coming. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate that you are willing to speak with so many people, uh, regardless of who they are, because you believe in the message. I just want to start off with something simple. The reason you're here today is to talk about, basically, we're trying to find truth in the medical field, in the world. We're going through a hard time. For those who maybe we would consider laymen or are unaware, can you just kind of lay out what we're seeing right now regarding COVID, regarding governments, and give us your perspective, and we'll go from there. Well, thanks for having me on the program. And as introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist, cardiologist, and trained epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. I spend about half of my time in clinical practice, and then half the time as an author, editor, as well as the president of a major medical society. I've taken on a recent role that really applies to your question. I'm the chief medical advisor as a volunteer position in the Truth for Health Foundation. And there can't be a better name for a foundation right now working on COVID relief, and that is Truth for Health. So you're right. Uh, the big issue right now is that this is such a fast moving field with so much information coming out per day. It has taken really a giant army of independent scientists to stay abreast of the information, be able to synthesize it and then digest it and ultimately provide an analysis. And my analysis have been relied upon very early on, actually, by uh, uh, individuals in the White House and then the U.S. Senate, multiple state senates. Uh, I had a, a really a series of opinion editorials in the Hill last year correctly uh, outlining for Americans all the major inflection points uh, in the pandemic. And now this year, I've started a radio show, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. I just I did my report this week. I've done one faithfully every week through this year of the pandemic. The central issues are that the science is uh, basically uh, an ever-changing, evolving, self-correcting process. So no person can declare themselves representing science, and science is not static. So what we know now about the virus is, and the pandemic is very different than uh, what we knew uh, a year ago. And I'd summarize it into five quick points and then you can take it from there. It is widely known that the tobacco and diet industries lobby governments with scientific propaganda for years until proven guilty in court. The artificial treatment of our water is the next corporate deception. For example, virtually every nation in Europe has rejected the use of artificial fluoride. International studies since the 40s have repeatedly shown that endocrine and neurological effects increase after repeated consumption, even at the levels accepted by US government. Epic Water Filters is the 
most thorough industry-grade filtration system that Houston Ensemble has ever used. They reduce heavy metals upwards of 99.5%, such as lead and mercury, bacteria like E. coli, and poisons like chromium, nitrate, and fluoride. Join us in our journey to living a toxin-free life and get your epic water filter using discount code Houston Ensemble, lowercase, one word. That's Houston Ensemble, lowercase, one word, for 20% off your epic water filter. The first point is that we've now learned the virus does not spread asymptomatically. So looking at you two right now, you two look like you have no symptoms. And if you have no symptoms, you can't spread the virus. That means that people with no symptoms need no masks. They don't need to worry about congregate settings. Again, it's all symptom-based now. This is wonderful. Papers by Cow and Madewell basically disproved asymptomatic spread. That's point number one. Point number two, if you can't spread it without symptoms, then we don't need to test people without symptoms. In fact, all the tests, the PCR, antigen, or even the limited sequencing tests now in the United States, diagnostically, they're only approved and only to be used in individuals who have acute symptoms of COVID-19. They are approved as diagnostic aids in arriving at the diagnosis of COVID-19. In fact, I think COVID-19 is such an important diagnosis, there ought to be two or more tests, just like HIV, to confirm it, and we shouldn't rely on a single test. But that means we can get rid of asymptomatic testing. The WHO said get rid of it June 25th. That means <clears throat> no testing uh, and getting on airplanes or in school or in employment. Uh, no testing once a week it means no testing in the NFL, NHL, major sports or college teams. This is wonderful news. On point number two, we can get rid of asymptomatic testing. In fact, when we do testing on people with no symptoms, up to 97% of the time, we just generate false positive results that create harm, take people out of the workplace, cost them money, uh, et cetera. So we just need to stop it right now. We're in great shape. The third point is once we are through COVID-19 and the CDC tells us 146 million Americans are already through COVID-19, it's done, they've already had it. It's one and done. You can't get the infection again. No one gets second infections. The only thing that's out there is uh, really some confused cases of false positive testing at a later time. So I know somebody in my family circles who had COVID-19 in 2020, had the characteristic syndromes, clinically was sick, and then tested positive 17 times later on through the year. They didn't have 17 cases of COVID. It's just one case per person. We know that because as it swept through the nursing homes last year, it hasn't had a second sweep through. And believe me, the most susceptible people, if you could get it again, would get it again. If it was possible to get a second case, we would have seen hundreds of millions of cases worldwide. And now our CDC has disclosed through us, through a Freedom of Information Act request, that the CDC doesn't have a single recorded case of someone getting COVID-19 a second time being confirmed and ever spreading it to anyone else. So Americans can understand on point number three, natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable, and, and really robust against all the variants. We haven't seen breakthroughs of Delta on top of Alpha or elsewise, so we're good there on natural immunity. The fourth point, very importantly, is that this is a treatable illness. We use drugs and sequence combination early in the course of disease, not late in the hospital, far too late to wait in the hospital, start treatment. We start treatment early in high-risk people over age 50 with multiple medical problems, really with a combination of over-the-counter oral and nasal virucidal washes into, uh, into oral uh, a therapy uh, that's taken as nutraceuticals and supplements, intravenous monoclonal antibodies, and then prescription oral drugs to treat viral replication 
inflammation, and thrombosis. And the fifth point now, most importantly, is that the are not sufficiently safe and not sufficiently effective to really feature in our pandemic response. They should only be offered uh, as they are as a research tool for those who are who understand the risks and benefits. Many would argue that uh, the product should actually be paused right now for a safety review. We've had 200 million people in the United States take a. Uh, we've had uh, large numbers of failures. Our CDC is telling us through mid-October, 41,000 people fully who have died or been hospitalized. Those are large numbers of failures. Remember, they don't have a single case of natural immunity failure. And we know that the efficacy of the has really run out after six months. Experts are recommending boosters. That tells you that the have poor coverage over a short period of time. And the Delta variant, and almost certainly now the Omicron variant, uh, are largely resistance to the making them obsolete. So those are the five points and you can take it from there. I'm sure you were familiar with um, Garrett Vandenbosch, potentially. Uh, he was basically the vaccinologist who worked for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He was on Brett Weinstein's podcast and he was worried about when we implement this vaccine too early, we may have a pandemic of variants rather than simply the one virus going on. Do you think, based on what you're just saying, especially regarding the waning immunity, regarding the variants, that that uh, notion has some semblance at this point? Early on in the pandemic, I actually held a symposium with uh, Dr. Gert Vandenbosch on the Covexit platform that is uh, hosted by Jean-Pierre Kirkens. At and we agreed on many things. I greatly respect his uh, vision. He's correctly called all the major things that we've seen in the development program. He cautioned the world not to mass into a pandemic where there's a highly prevalent virus. It's, it's similar to if you had uh, an outbreak of staph infections on a hospital ward, if you, if you blanketed everybody with penicillin, one would just grow up resistant uh, strains of staphylococcus. The same thing here. If we, if we blanket everyone indiscriminately with mass, which almost every world government is doing, we are now promoting dominant mutant strains. And in papers by Neeson and colleagues from Boston and Mayo Clinic and Venkata Krishnan from Boston, they've clearly shown that the are the culprit. They are responsible for dominant mutant strains to move forward. Uh, we had Delta. Delta is 99% of the cases. It has achieved antigenic escape. It lives in high viral loads in the nose and mouth of the, that's been clearly shown by Acharian, by Rai Marisma, by Chow, many other authors, uh, even up to a thousand fold that of the uh, previously unvaccinated era with uh, uh, other variants. So Delta uh, at a very high viral load. And now we have the entry of Omicron which is not a transformer. A lot of kids think it's a transformer. It's not. It's actually a mutant form of the virus. And there it's the most heavily mutated form, 30 mutations in the spike protein, 10 in the receptor binding domain, three uh, de deletions, one insertion. It must be a dysmorphic spike protein because now there's S gene dropout on the PCR. This is enough to actually change the spike protein PCR profile, polypolymerase chain reaction. What uh, your listeners need to know in English is that Omicron arose in the fully, there's some travelers crossing the border of Botswana. So it's clear that Omicron is a product of mass uh, and indiscriminate. 
But fortunately, data from uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Fanini's lab in France has shown uh, modeling lower transmissibility than Delta. If Delta is at 10 transmissivity index, uh, Omicron's at about four. And we know the previous um, alpha variant was at about two. So Omicron looks like it's going to be less contagious than Delta. And the early reports are, although heavily influenced on whether or not someone gets treatment, uh, right now, Omicron looks like a milder form of the illness. So I've predicted for a national audience on TV, it's always hard as a doctor to predict and then be held to it later on, that Omicron will not supplant Delta, but it will, in a sense, carve out its own ecological niche, just like Lambda and Eta did without much public health uh, importance. I just saw an interview with the head of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, who was describing a project in the works, I'm sure it's been in the works for quite some time, where they're developing a fourth shot for this Omicron variant. And it was interesting because he started off the statement saying that we are basing these new inoculations on a model of Omicron that we have gathered. And so we do not have a live sample. We have generated a model and we are creating this inoculation based on that. Why would Albert Bourla go that route? Why not get a live sample from an infected person or you know, a zoological sample or something like that? Why go? Can you explain what are your thoughts, if any, on that? I think, uh, I think Americans and people worldwide should be concerned when a CEO of a manufacturer is trying to advise the country or the world on the strategy. That's a gross conflict of interest. Someone like him should actually be completely out of the media now because this is a public health crisis. Uh, I think it's wholly inappropriate for uh, uh, someone who's the CEO of a manufacturing company who has a gross conflict of interest in clinical development to be giving any commentary about changes in the midst of a public health crisis like this. CEOs of manufacturers should be off the air. They should be prohibited from public comment because of conflict of interest. They cannot give a fair balanced assessment of what's going on because they're heavily conflicted. The same comments would apply to the CEO of Pfizer and even former FDA chairman, Scott Gottlieb, who's commonly commenting on the public health response. These individuals ought to exempt themselves from public comment because of conflict of interest. And I think the press really should hold them accountable. I have no conflict of interest whatsoever. I'm an independent scientist, a clinical physician, epidemiologist. I see and examine patients every day who have received the vaccine as well as who've had COVID-19. So I'm completely grounded in my comments. We know that with each injection of messenger RNA, in the case of Moderna, it's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. It codes for the original Wuhan spike protein, uh, say for one or two changes in amino acids. And we know that that Wuhan spike protein has been largely extinct from the world for many months now. So the Moderna vaccine is coding against uh, a, an extinct version of the spike protein. Fortunately, there's enough antibodies uh, two um, common elements of the spike protein where Moderna has some efficacy. It's markedly diminished from its original efficacy, but it still has some. So uh, it, the Moderna is not completely useless 
but it is markedly diminished. For example, the efficacy out of the Moderna randomized trials was 90% protection against the viral illness, the kind of the viral upper respiratory tract illness. We now know in a paper by um, Cohn and colleagues from the Veterans Administration, uh, over 700,000 veterans, they calculated efficacy, not randomized. So again, this is biased towards making the look good because of selection bias. We know that efficacy has slipped in September to about 70%. And that was very similar to what was found by Nordstrom and colleagues from Sweden in 1.6 million pairs of individuals for the same outcome, uh, the development of the upper respiratory tract uh, infection. So with 70% protection and only about six months of duration, all the manufacturers uh, acknowledge it's six months. Uh, the immunity is sufficiently weak. It's not compelling for a public health uh, uh, proposal that everyone should get. Now, sadly, what happens with each injection, there is a mosaic of cells that take up the genetic material and start producing the spike protein. The spike protein is 1,200 amino acids. It's the spine on the ball of the virus, and it's directly dangerous to uh, critical organs, the brain, the heart, uh, the reproductive organs, uh, the blood vessels, and in fact, directly causes blood clotting. All that's sufficiently proven now. So we know the spike protein is a bad actor. It's the last thing we want in the human body. And in fact, with the first injection, uh, within, within the first day, there's measurable spike protein in the blood, even up to 29 days later. We now know the messenger RNA lasts in the body probably uh, for a month or longer. And this spike protein that's distributed throughout the body, it's now known that it can take about a year and a half to clear it out of the body with the respiratory infection, a much lower quantity. And now with the, almost certainly a larger quantity, we're probably on that year and a half schedule, the, both the S1 and the S2 segments of the protein. So what I'm telling you is with each injection, the body is loaded with spike protein and has over a year now to clear out each injection. So once we get to six months, it will become impossible to prevent loading the body of the dangerous Wuhan spike protein. And even if Moderna adjusts it for Omicron, it's still the spike protein that will have injurious access to it. And we shouldn't have a foreign protein devised in a lab from China, installed into human bodies in Americans and all over the world. I wanted to ask real brief, sorry for interrupting. Um, you know, as long as we're on this topic, can you explain to the layperson? how you just mentioned up to a month of the synthetic synthesis, protein synthesis, right? So how exactly does the synthesis work? You mentioned in your paper, like the Elsevier paper, there's this uncontrolled synthesis of protein in the body. So why is that a problem? And by your logic, if we continue to use these inoculations one after another, what possible explanation could there be for such a prescription to the public? For the messenger RNA, uh, they come in on a lipid nanoparticles. The lipid nanoparticles are initially injected in the deltoid, uh, but it's believed they're widely circulatory within a few minutes. And the lipid nanoparticles go to lipophilic organs like the brain, the adrenal glands, the reproductive organs, and then they dump their genetic payload, which is messenger RNA. The messenger RNA is taken up by cells, and then it harnesses the cell's machinery in order to start producing the foreign spike protein. The messenger RNA is unique because it has nuclear 
analog caps at the three prime and five prime ends that make it basically undigestible uh, by human RNA aces, at least for a period of time. And now in uh, two papers by Dr. Anthony Karaglokoulos, of which I've co-authored, we've clearly shown the rationale for why the messenger RNA is long lasting in the human body. And the manufacturers knew this because these were genetic platforms that were being used to actually produce normal proteins in the human body, like a disease for Fabry's disease. So these were designed to be once every month or once every three months injections anyway, in order to produce normal proteins. Now they're being harnessed to actually produce abnormal proteins uh, for now, unfortunately, a prolonged duration of time. Remember the average uh, immunization we take gives us a day or two of antigenic exposure and we form immunity to it like a tetanus shot. You know, we don't want to take an injection and have a foreign protein that we have to fight off for month after month after month, and then have synthetic genetic material that we finally have to digest after several months. And it may be with the, um, the Johnson and Johnson and the AstraZeneca, it may be worse because it's actually now giving the adenoviral uh, uh, installation of DNA into the human nucleus of cells. And then it produces a messenger RNA uh, for the spike protein. And then that production continues to cycle on for quite some period of time. We know that's the case because <clears throat> interestingly with the Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca, uh, they have some characteristic late syndromes, including dramocytic pinopiperia, where there's uh, basically an attack in the bone marrow and the spleen, a hemolytic anemia, a, a, a clotting and bleeding at the same time. This is well described in the medical literature now, as well as neurologic syndromes with AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson, including Guillain-Barre syndrome, for instance, ascending paralysis that takes some time to develop. These, as we look at them coming out of development, we now have an entire array of fatal and non-fatal syndromes that are occurring. I think we're coming up on close to a million Americans that have either died or been injured uh, from the And those numbers are extraordinary. We have about 200 million individuals take the those numbers are absolutely unacceptable. Going off of that, speaking about the potential risks um, regarding getting the shot, you published a paper, uh, reports uh, report on myocarditis events with Jessica Rose. It was published on Elsevier and then taken down. Um, basically, one of the stipulations in the paper was that you're seeing a 19 times higher, a 19-fold increase in myocarditis events in specifically young men, and I believe more. Can you just kind of tell people that story? Because once I heard that, I was like, wow, this is a, a serious problem. The universe event reporting system is run by the CDC. And what Americans should know is that um, uh, about 86% of the reports are done by doctors, nurses, other people who think the vaccine actually caused the injury. Only about 14 or 15% are done by uh, the patients themselves. And then the CDC goes through and verifies the, you know, a death, a hospitalization, what happened. Sometimes they uh, check the records, make a phone call. I've done the reports myself. So I've been called. I know, I know that what the CDC is certifying is real. And we get a report once a week called open data, which gives us a red box report showing us uh, the events. And so they run a week or so in arrears, but the red box report is valid. All experts agree. And there, about half of what you see in a red box report are domestic. Those are within the uh, continental United States and uh, Hawaii and Alaska. 
And then the other half are through countries or the pharmaceutical companies that by arrangement use our system for reporting. So uh, we are close now to, um, I believe, 19,000 uh, uh, deaths or over 19,000 deaths in VAERS. So at least half of those 9,500 are domestic Americans who've passed away after the vaccine. And we've, uh, I believe, 31,000 permanently disabled Americans. This is, this is worse than a war at this point in time. And analyses by Rose and McLaughlin show that about 86% of the time, there's no other cause. The vaccine has basically caused uh, the damage. Now with myocarditis, heart inflammation, as originally described by the CDC and FDA in 200 cases in June, um, uh, you know, I, was, I provided public commentary at that time on the major news stations. I said, listen, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And it's serious because the kids were being hospitalized in the CDC FDA review, 90% of the kids were hospitalized. And now sure enough, uh, as we sit here today, we have 15,000 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis that the CDC has certified in this telemetry. We went from 200 to 15,000. And we're seeing the literature pour in on myocarditis. The paper in question uh, was a basically an analysis of the VARES system that Jessica Rose and myself did. She's a viral epidemiologist. I'm a cardiologist, so we're perfectly suited to analyze these data. The major findings of the paper is, you're right, the, the rates were far higher than expected. In fact, uh, now by, by recent evidence, we were actually low. Uh, we know the rate per million per year before COVID was about four cases per million per year, as established uh, in a paper by Arola et al., in the cardiology literature pre-COVID. Now, uh, the estimates are this could be as high as 162 cases per million. So this is you know, approaching something in the order of 50 to, uh, to 40 to 50 fold higher than expected. And uh, in the uh, Rose analysis, the, uh, it's, it's about 90% boys, by the way, and about 10% girls, but it's uh, peaks around the late teenage years and it extends all the way to age 50. This is the important point. This is not just a childhood problem. This extends particularly in men up to age 50. And now we have data by Tracy Hogue from the University of California, Davis, showing a boy is more likely to be hospitalized with induced myocarditis than they are to be hospitalized with COVID-19, the respiratory illness, since COVID is so mild in children. And now in the last few days in the American Heart Association, uh, journal family. We have a paper by Trong and colleagues from the Division of Pediatrics at the University of Utah in Salt Lake, 139 individuals, the vast majority with myocarditis and heart injury required hospitalization. A fraction of them required actually critical care observation. And then those who underwent an MRI, about three quarters had late gadolinium enhancement meaning that there was actually physical evidence of injury to the heart, which we expect to form scarring. So I can tell you as a cardiologist, I'm greatly concerned about this. We shouldn't have a single case of myocarditis. We should not be actually publishing on this and having this become a new disease category and previously healthy children. And data from Tashopi and colleagues pre-COVID suggests that this form of myocarditis will probably leave about a 13% rate of permanent heart damage in these children. Even if it's short duration and their symptoms clear up quickly, I'm concerned that a fraction of these kid kids are basically permanently damaged by a vaccine they don't have any clinical indication to receive. It's not medically necessary and it's not compelling that they receive a COVID-19. For people who don't know as well, Elsevier is the largest academic publisher 
in the world. And they also kind of tout themselves as the intellectual descendant of um, the original Elsevier publisher who published Galileo, who published uh, Rasmussen, um, and others. Basically, people who were saying things that went against the grain of common science. And I think it is just uh, purely ironic that today, when you publish something, which is simply a, a data analysis of the VAERS database, showing a signal of adverse events that need to be looked at, that they would immediately withdraw it. And um, Well, can I, I know- clarify that? I want to clarify it. Elsevier did not immediately withdraw it. Now, this paper was invited by the journal. It was fully peer-reviewed, vetted. We had galley proofs uh, reviewed, edited. It was copyrighted. It was contracted. We paid additional fees for color figure. You know, we paid our publication fees, which are not small. This is a done deal. It's cited in the National Library of Medicine, and it was actually receiving uh, views and downloads. This is part of medical history. And then five days before the U.S. FDA pediatric meeting on approval, Elsevier pulled it. And what they told us was that they weren't sure if they invited the paper to begin with. And there was no problems with scientific validity. There was no problem with the contract or anything else. And so they literally picked uh, what, what is an a, um, unsupportable reason to pull a paper out of medical history. So as you can imagine, Elsevier now has committed uh, censorship. Uh, they have breach of contract. They signed a publication contract. They accepted fees. Uh, so they've breached the contract. And then worse than that, they've actually committed tortuous meaning they've actually illegally interfered with the business of scientific publication and dissemination. Even the World Health Organization has guidance on this. In the setting of a public health emergency, journals under no circumstance uh, can ever consider doing this unless the data are scientifically invalid, which they're not. So I can tell you, as we speak, Elsevier is under threat of lawsuit, a very important letter of intent to file lawsuit. The world's largest medical publisher is going to be held at trial in terms of censorship of key information that could have been used in a sense to protect children against the safety hazards of the COVID-19 vaccine. This is going to be a landmark case. I would hope so. Have you heard of, I'm sure you've probably spoken to Dr. Richard Fleming, or perhaps you've spoken to Vladimir Zelenko. And um, according to their analysis, and there's a couple of things maybe we can touch upon, um, Richard Fleming has repeatedly explained that there are actual permanent genetic ramifications or or consequences of these inoculations, whereas the the common criticism or the common... uh, debunking point is that there's absolutely no genetic risk with these. Can you please explain that? And if you can remember one more, um, according to Zelenko's estimations, if these inoculations continue years forward, we should mentally prepare for dead bodies. And do you think that that's a, too much, too critical of an assessment, or what do you think? Let me just take the issue of permanent genetic changes in the body. The jury's still out on whether or not there's reverse transcription and actually an installation of the code for the spike protein into what's called the HERV region of chromosomes. That's where we have 
vestigial uh, remnants of other viral infections like Epstein-Barr virus are still out. There are plenty of papers suggesting it's possible uh, uh, for sure. Uh, that the same concerns would occur with the respiratory illness as well. Um, but let me say this, just what we know is concerning enough. Uh, we know that the messenger RNA has synthetic analog caps, and we know now that it must stay in the body uh, for some duration of time, at least a month or even more than that. And we know the spike protein in paper from Bruce Patterson with the respiratory infection, and then from Banzel that just broke recently on the vaccine-induced spike protein production in the body. We know the spike protein production is long-lasting. I think that in alone is an observation that would lead me to uh, conclude that successive injections done on a booster schedule every six months or even more aggressively every three months will lead to chronic disease. So, and the, the question is what forms of chronic disease? Now the Rose analysis in the American Journal of Public Health Policy and Law divided into four categories, neurologic, um, and that could include a range of neurologic syndromes, the ones the, current, the FDA currently recognizes, and then additional ones, the ones that Dr. Fleming has pointed out as a uh, theoretical consideration would be progressive cognitive decline in forms of uh, dementia. Uh, the cardiac syndromes, we've just gone over it, myocarditis, and then if that is, occurs on a repeated basis, that would lead to heart failure and cardiac death. We have hematologic, I've already described vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, but there may be other hematologic abnormalities that we see over time, particularly thromboembolic, since we know the spike protein causes blood clots uh, in, in preclinical as well as with the respiratory infection. We could have enhanced thromboembolic syndromes, particularly in individuals who are prone to blood clotting, such as those with uh, protein C and S deficiency, uh, antithrombin-3 deficiency, uh, the uh, MTHFR, uh, factor V Leiden. Your listeners will recognize these as prothrombotic or hemoph uh, um, hemophilia types of states. And then lastly, the fourth category is immunologic injury. And there's great concern. There's now at least a couple papers suggesting that vaccine may uh, paradoxically knock down the immunity and make it far worse in for individuals from an immune competence perspective in the future. All four of these domains are not good. They can all be ascribed to the spike protein. And then there's one large looming consideration that the Chinese have warned us about. The Chinese have already published that the S2 segment of the spike protein interacts with two cancer genes, the P53 gene and the BRCA gene, BRCA. And women will recognize that as a gene coding for breast cancer, as well as female reproductive tract cancers. If this is true, and that we have prolonged S2 segment of spike protein exposure, as Banzel has shown us right now after the, we could have a chronic uh, oncogenic stimulus to the human body for a whole array of cancers, breast cancers, female reproductive cancers, the P53 gene has governance over uh, melanoma, for instance, uh, uh, nephroblastoma, and other forms of solid organ cancers. I'm greatly concerned that with no safety data, no oncogenicity information, no teratogenicity information, and just such an abbreviated development program that with regular injections, we are in a sense giving an installation of a foreign protein where on a more likely than not basis will lead to chronic disease. And maybe some of those will be fatal. And so 
by extension, maybe Dr. Fleming is on the right track that we could end up with early mortalities that are starting to occur. We're seeing this explosively, by the way, in athletes. You may be following this story, but we're approaching 200 athletes with sudden cardiac death events on the field. And there's great concern that the vaccines uh, given are setting up these young athletes for either clinical or subclinical myocarditis with symptoms being ignored. And then with physical activity, which we know is a provocateur of sudden death in myocarditis that indeed this is happening. Going along with that, um, I've heard you discuss it before, but can you tell our listeners about the Nuremberg laws and how that is applied to all of this? The U.S. The US Office of Human Research Protections, OHRP, which does have purview over the U.S. program. So the U.S. program is voluntary research. It's either in the consent forms indicates in all states, either investigation or research. So every American, the 200 million Americans have taken a have participated in research. When they sign that consent, they are participating in research. That, um, th- that because it's research, uh, the Office of Human Research Protection has six cornerstones of bioethical principles. The first two are most important. The first one is the Nuremberg Code, which came out of the Nuremberg trials in Nazi Germany, where there was atrocities being done with respect to forcing people into Nazi research. And the same thing would be here. Anybody who felt any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal, in a sense, uh, uh, has, has been a victim of a violation of the Nuremberg Code. Any person who's had their employer pressure them into taking the vaccine or having a family member pressure them, that in fact, they have broken the Nuremberg Code. This is a code of bioethics. It's a sacred code. If I had a research study of a new medicine and I pressured my patients into taking that new medicine as a doctor, I would actually be sanctioned by the Human Ethics Board and potentially the IRB. I can't do that. So as a good doctor, I've never recommended the COVID-19. I've not never de-recommended them. I have to be neutral on research. All good doctors have been neutral on research. Others who haven't, they've actually violated a code of clinical ethics. And in my opinion, that's not good, good clinical practice. The second cornerstone is relevant here is the Declaration of Helsinki which means that everybody participating in research has to be fair, balanced um, uh, presentation of the risks and benefits. And one of the things you'll note in the consent form now, there's no presentation of the VAERS data. I've given you the VAERS number. Anybody taking the right now should know the VAERS has 19,000 deaths. They have over a quarter million urgent care visits, hospitalizations, and uh, office visits due to injuries, and there's 31,000 people are permanently disabled. That should actually be in the consent form. So the next person who takes a shot, it gives, it gets given a fair warning on what's going on. So even the whole program is violating the Declaration of Helsinki. The Declaration of Helsinki, by the way, maps to the uh, U.S. Cosmetic Drug Act, uh, uh, Fair Balance in Drug Advertising, as well as the Landman Act. This is very important. Anytime a, something, a medical product is presented on TV, or presented on a billboard, it must give the risks and the benefits. And this applies to the, just because emergency use authorized doesn't mean that that fair balance should be thrown out the window. And the case example I wanna point out is two CNN correspondents, one of them a doctor who absolutely either, either knows or should have known that, that they cannot go on Sesame Street and try to seduce children into taking the without pre- pre- presenting the fair balance of the risks and the benefits, including myocarditis, the FDA warning of myocarditis to the parents and the children. 
They were just on there literally trying to seduce the children into taking without giving them a fair um, presentation of the risks of the that's uh, in my view that's unethical it's immoral and from a civil perspective it's illegal when i saw that specifically we were talking about sanjay gupta and i'm not i don't remember the other woman's name on cnn doing a 30 minute segment with sesame street that just doesn't hit me that doesn't hit me right. It doesn't actually sit well spiritually with me, but moreover, like you're saying, on a completely objective level, they are not representing the data as it should be. Um, I don't know why more people don't see a problem with that. Another thing well, that I... Well, well, let me just juxtapose an example. Americans see commercials all the time for uh, advanced treatments for psoriasis. I'm sure you've seen these commercials someone has terrible psoriasis and they go on a new medicine and their skin clears up and they're dying in swimming pools and they're dancing and they feel great. Remember those commercials advertise the drug, but they always have a warning and they say, warning, you know, may cause tuberculosis or, you know, don't use it if you have these medical problems. There's always fair balance. Every single advertisement for the ought to give a fair balance of what they do, what they're trying to do but also what the potential harms are. And we're not seeing this with the program. Americans and people worldwide should be alarmed that laws are being broken. Have you been uh, maybe challenged or threatened or bullied in any way by any larger institutions or people who are higher up? I was on Joe Rogan show this week, and he asked me that question too. And what I told Joe is, I said, listen, I've experienced some sniping meaning that somebody trying to take a shot, uh, but not having the courage to show their face. But I've never had a direct conversation with somebody eye to eye where, where we had an exchange on information. I never had someone come up to me and say, Dr. McCullough, these are really safe and effective. And here's the reason why. Never. I've never had someone come up to me and say, Dr. McCullough, the best course of action is to not treat COVID-19. Never. Uh, in fact, I've received the sniping I've received is I have uh, received a threat letter from the American College of Physicians. Uh, I have been uh, stripped of professorships at Texas A&M University and Texas Christian University without due process, without any faculty senate, without any courtesy phone calls, and certainly without any fair exchange of scientific views. I've been stripped of an editorship from cardiorenal medicine, again, with the same process of no discussion, no courtesy phone call, uh, uh, no explanation, simply stripped. And then I've been stripped off a, um, an oversight committee for the National Institutes of Health and a writing committee from the American College of Cardiology. Again, with no explanation, no courtesy phone call, and no fair exchange of information. I can tell you in my decades of academic medical experience, this is unprecedented. This type of uh, uh, activity is unprecedented. It appears to me, it appears to be targeted. It appears to be unethical and almost certainly from a civil perspective, illegal. Mm -hmm. I was going to, I, I'm, I, I cherish the time we have, so I'm trying to ask as many questions as possible. Um, firstly, are there any epidemiological reasons to do forced quarantining? forced isolation camps as we're seeing in australia now in germany are there any medical reasons 
the virus simply can't be spread with, without having symptoms. So the only people who need to be in a quarantine are those who are actively sick with COVID. Fortunately, at any given time, that's a small number of people. So no, we, we wouldn't want people who don't have the virus. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's not supportable at all to put them into some type of camp. They don't have the virus. It's not of any concern. And uh, you, you know, if, if there's a sick person and they were actually taken to a treatment center and got medicines, that would be okay. But but our experience is, and we've treated, you know, in the United States now, we've treated millions upon millions of Americans. We treat them at home. There's no need to waste the money or the effort on some type of relocation camp. Second, real quick thing, clear this up for the people. Everybody says, or they cite this point, it doesn't enter the nucleus of the cell. It doesn't enter the nucleus of the cell. Can you clear that up for us? Explain that to us. What happens? It depends on the... Now, Pfizer and Moderna, uh, the messenger RNA goes into the rough endoplasmic reticulum in the cytosol of the cell, and it sets up shop and it produces the spike protein within the cytosol of the cell. The spike protein is expressed on the cell surface. Then the body attacks its own cells. The spike protein then goes out and damages other cells. That's what happens with Pfizer and Moderna. With Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, that's a replication incompetent adenovirus, and that does inject DNA into the nucleus of the cell. The, then that DNA produces messenger RNA, which goes out into the cytosol and then begins to assemble the um, a spike protein. So they're different mechanisms. So for Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, by, by definition, they go into the nucleus, but Pfizer and Moderna do not. Last one, and then Chad, you you can go, please. You've you've been asked this question before. I've watched so many of your presentations, and I understand it may be difficult to make any large assumptions. But seeing as they repeatedly make recommendations that are not medically grounded, and seeing as they're aware from previous presentations, like the FDA presentation we saw in October of 2020 where they glazed over the list of side effects very quickly, or now that we're learning that the Moderna inoculations were actually vetted to some extent way back in 2019. So given these and other factors, do you think that there's something greater than simple, you know, uh, what can I, I'm trying to say, yeah, I'm trying to say it softly, incompetence. Do you think there may be something greater than that? I thought you were going to hit some different themes, but it's a good point to bring up some key books in reading. These are nonfiction. Uh, These are very factual and heavily cited books. Uh, One of the first ones out of the gate is a a brief book by uh, Diane Andrews out of Baton Rouge about COVID-19, followed by Dr. Pam Popper out of Columbus, Ohio. Again, laying out the complicated connections. The next one to weigh in was by Dr. Peter Bregan, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey. I wrote one of the introductions uh, with Dr. Lee Vliet and then Vladimir Zelenko. And now, now most recently, The Real Anthony Fauci, written by Robert F. Kennedy of the Children's Health Defense Fund. All of these books give different, different uh, um, uh, they're complementary. Oh, and I'd say one additional book by Scott Atlas, who was on the White House task force uh, for a while, working on the inside. All of them div, div, give different aspects of it. In summary, uh, it appears as if the crisis was planned, and it was planned years in advance uh, in order to arrange a mass 
program. That appears to be fairly uh, straightforward now. And there are many stakeholders, including uh, the People's Republic of China, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, the Gates Foundation, Gavi, CEPI, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Klaus Schwab, uh, the U.S. government, two major, uh, we've had two major Democratic and Republican administrations. They're all, in a sense, uh, heavily engaged in this program. And, uh, you know, interesting, there's different elements to it. Uh, you know, in Scott Atlas's book, I had a chance, by the way, to have dinner with Scott uh, a few weeks ago at a symposium in Columbus. Scott basically thinks that it's a crisis of incompetence, that in fact, the White House task force people, uh, it's not as collusional as what people think, uh, that they have good intentions. They actually do want the pandemic to end. It's just that they're grossly incompetent. And, and what he stated is that he would show up to all the task force, meeting, task force meetings and he was like me. He could quote all the papers. He knew all the data and none of the other individuals, the NIH, CDC and FDA uh, representatives, they didn't show up with any data. They actually didn't know what was going on. They had a couple of talking points and they said, yeah, we're going to the country. And that was it. So a couple of times on national TV, I've told Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle on Fox News. I said, you know, I think they're running nine months behind in, in the data. I think they are. I think most things that we've talked about today are actually unknown to our federal officials at the major uh, agencies, the CDC, NIH, and FDA. They're simply just not up to date. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And uh, just basically one more question for you, because we know it's about time to go here. Um, you have been, you know, with, have done things with RFK, Robert Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, who I'm also a big fan of, just kind of a, a different general question. Do you uh, harbor the same sort of sentiment about all as he does or the majority of them? Or would you say that you guys are a little bit different in that? I'd say we're different. I have a balanced view. Um, I do subscribe to the benefit of vaccines. I think vaccines have uh, uh, been great advances in medicine with um, uh, in, in so many illnesses from smallpox to, um, uh, to mumps and measles, uh, rubella, uh, polio being a big one, N now meningococcal infections. You know, you know, every year we have our kids go off to college, 20 million kids get the meningococcal vaccine. Uh, we do not see outbreaks of meningitis in dorms anymore, these horrific neurologic complications. And you know, the meningococcal vaccine, you don't see people protesting on college campuses. You don't see uh, court cases on the meningococcal vaccine. You know why? Because there's zero deaths. Genetic transfer technology uh, uh, products that are repositioned as vaccines and then given in a public program. And within a few months, uh, it, it becomes uh, 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 much more uh, onerous on the population uh, it becomes, in a sense, pressured, then demanded, then mandated uh, in a, in a uh, accelerating increase in measured force at the same time that we learn that are not sufficiently effective and not sufficiently safe to even have a public offering of. That's where I have a problem. And I can tell you, if we don't stop this freight train, um, I'm predicting for America and for the world uh, a real decline in human health. It's pretty clear that aren't doing anything for the COVID-19 pandemic. Paper by Subramanian and colleagues analyzed every single country. It's clear the more there's, the worse COVID-19 gets. So the program is backfiring on the illness and the pandemic. It has modest short-term benefits on hospitalization and death for those who survive the, but overall it's not a favorable trade-off. 
And I think the world would be much better off right now if we paused the program. In fact, I think there'd be a U.S. national holiday. If tomorrow the went away, I think people go out in the streets and celebrate. I know they would in Europe and, and across many regions of the world. Yeah. And to end, to end this positively, can you maybe give us um, what, what can the people do? What is your outlook? What should we do as a community to further this crit- style of critical discussion, logical thinking, etc.? How do we go? Where do we go from here? Many have said we're in a mass psychosis, you know, driven by isolation and, and removal of things that make us happy and by chronic free-floating anxiety that, that the, the solution uh, to that situation as offered, and there's no limit to the absurdity to the solution. It's almost like a, a mass suicide in a religious cult or a Nazi Germany. These are uh, our historical examples of mass psychosis. We're in a mass psychosis on the brain and people are under the psychotic influence of the mass psychosis program. And so in order to break that, we have to have relatability. We have to be able to relate to our relatives. We have to be able to you know, have fair discussions on this. Every patient should be showing the safety report to their doctors over and over again. That's mandatory. Everybody ought to print off the most recent copy of the VAERS Redbox report and show it to every single doctor and say, doctor, I'm concerned, aren't you? Why aren't you concerned with these deaths? And it has to have the conversation. Doctors, we think about a million doctors, by the way, are under the spell of mass psychosis. And only about 500 doctors know what's going on in the United States. Uh, there's a slightly greater proportion of nurses and mid-level providers, but we got to bring the doctors out of the trance. Remember, the doctors are responsible. The CDC, FDA, and NIH—they're not treating organizations. They're not treating doctors. Uh, you know, they're not running the show. The doctors are running the show of healthcare in the United States, and it's really up to us to pull America out of it. Why do? You, why are you so enthusiastic, so adamant about spreading your message? I mean, it's kind of a risk to you, as you said, your practice has been threatened. So why do you do this? You know, I can tell you one thing and people in our circles, we have one thing that no one else has. We have truth and the truth is unassailable and the truth will prevail at the end. And I tell you, I'm committed to the truth. I know in the end, truth will will prevail. And it's just going to be rocky roads between now and then. Wow. Well, yep. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for coming today. We are eternally grateful for you, grateful for your work. We're going to link all of your information in our description of the video so that people can follow you. Is there anything that you want to uh, say that they should look up um, right now of yours? Well, I, you know, I just offer up to everyone. They can follow me on America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. I issue a report each week to America. It's part of my social media profile. And I've uh, synchronized social media across Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, as well as America Out Loud Talk Radio and elsewhere. Um, I'm getting some help with that since I'm a busy doctor. I'm seeing patients, uh, but I'm going to do much better on social media. And I've been in social media. I'm very committed to just showing the data very transparently without any conflict of interest. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been Dr. Peter McCullough, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Have a great day. It is widely known that the tobacco and diet industries lobby governments with scientific propaganda for years until proven guilty in court. The artificial treatment of our water is the next corporate deception. For example, virtually every nation in Europe has rejected the use of artificial fluoride. International studies since the 40s have repeatedly shown that endocrine and neurological effects increase after repeated consumption, even at the levels accepted by U.S. government. Epic Water Filters is the most thorough industry-grade filtration system that Houston Ensemble has ever used. They reduce heavy metals up 
upwards of 99.5% such as lead and mercury, bacterias like E. coli, and poisons like chromium, nitrate, and fluoride. Join us in our journey to living a toxin-free life and get your epic water filter using discount code Houston Ensemble lowercase one word. That's Houston Ensemble lowercase one word for 20% off your epic water filter.